0: Pull out your knitting project. Mm-hmm. This episode is sponsored by com. Every week on Hire, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company, or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at hire.com/rubyrogues. I'm excited to tell you about a new sponsor of the show, Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Ugh! Relying on users to report errors, digging through log files to debug issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context insights and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. It's easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in eight minutes or less, or automatically create new issues in GitHub, Jira, Pivotal Tracker, etc. We have a special offer for Ruby Rogues listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash rubyrogues, sign up, and get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked free. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash rubyrogues. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 268 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Sam Livingston Gray. Hello from Cape Cod. Coraline Ada Emke. Hi from Chicago. Jessica Kerr.
1: Good morning.
0: I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. A quick reminder to go check out I've got Angular Remote Conf and React Remote Conf coming up. We also have a special guest this week, and that's Jameis Buck. Hello. Now, Jameis, you've been on the show before, I think. Do you want to introduce yourself again, real quick, though? Sure. Be happy to. I'm Jameis Buck.
2: I uh, write software, unlike most of the people listening to this, I'm sure. And, uh, I enjoy mazes and recreational programming, and I'm currently living in uh, sunny Smithfield, Utah, while my wife goes back to school.
0: Smithfield, that's up by Ogden, isn't it? It is, it's
2: north, it's closer to Logan.
0: Oh, okay. Ah, the Utah connection. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So the first time I heard of Jameis, I was actually working at BYU, and somebody talked to me about Ruby, and then somebody else, when I mentioned it to them, talked to me about Jameis. So then... Things moved on. I joined the Utah Ruby Users Group, and it turns out that Jameis was one of the people that started that. So.
2: That's right. That was a long time ago. Ancient history.
0: Yeah. And then uh, there have been other connections over the years at conferences and things. But I'm super excited. I, I love talking to Jameis. Always doing interesting things. And this week we're going to talk to you about mazes.
2: Yeah, let's do it. Mazes are
0: awesome. I've uh,
2: I've been having kind of a love affair with mazes for I don't know, like 20 years so there's high school. And then of course I, I had the obligatory uh, fascination with Dungeons and Dragons. And I, I wrote several random generators for, uh, the 3.5 edition of Dungeons and Dragons, including a random dungeon generator where I, I dusted off my maze skills for that. And I've been playing with them various, various different times and places. And, uh, it's just been a lot of fun. Like there's so many different ways to vary them and to experiment with them. And it's just like this, this bottomless uh, rabbit hole. I was going to say pit, but that's not very pleasant. It's a lot yeah. more fun than that. <laughs> I remember in my early days of D&D, I've been playing
3: since I was a, I was a kid. And uh, mapping was one of my favorite things. I love drawing maps on graph paper. And um, when I was a player, I loved the task of being the mapper. And that's something that's missing from the fifth edition games now. Really, I haven't checked the 5th edition. That's disappointing. Yeah, yeah yes. it's um, it's much more like tactical maps, and um, you don't really map your surroundings. So I think that's uh, that was a really cool part of the game that we're losing out on.
2: I agree. I've always loved the maps, and probably because of the maze connection. But yeah, just what's around the next corner or what could be around the next corner. I've always loved that.
0: Yeah. So I'm kind of curious. Uh, it seems like mazes... I don't know. I guess I don't know enough about them to think that they're all that complicated. Yeah. You, you just you, <laughs> you make them so there's just sport. one way through, right? So,
2: sure. I mean, well, that's the thing. There's perfect mazes, which are the the one one solution through the maze. But then you can play the what if game. What if there were multiple solutions through a maze? You know, how do you take a maze with one solution and complicate it so that there's more than one solution? And what does that do to the you know the the ways you you approach solving the maze and what happens when you stack multiple mazes on top of each other and you have like the, the office complex instead of the flat, you know, one-dimensional rat maze or two-dimensional rat maze?
0: And, and, I've been uh, in that office. <laughs> I think we all have. <laughs> I, I think my brain just melted.
2: Follow the orange wall, they said. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's so many different uh, ways, like – and. Even when you're just talking about generating mazes, like uh, randomly constructing them, there's at least 12 different algorithms you can use for that. And each has its different strengths and weaknesses and benefits and, and different ways to, to tweak it and, and play the what if game. And I guess that's what I love about it is that it really is this huge field that you can do almost anything in. You can do so, so many different variations of these things. It's so fun to play with. Do
1: you accept the constraint that the mazes be like physically possible like you could print them or if you're working the maze in the computer can it be like physically impossible?
2: Physically impossible to like, to, to
1: like exist like where rooms would be superimposed on each other if it were in real space.
2: Well, I totally think that's fun like four-dimensional mazes for instance where you hmm. can you can go forward and then move thither in the fourth dimension. <laughs> And then, very, very technical there. And then, like, if you were to map that onto three dimensions, you might be standing in the same place, but you're off by just that one fourth dimension. That's, it's a lot of fun. And you, you get that in, in games where they have like the portals and teleporters, which can make very distant locations adjacent. So yeah, I mean, you add the fourth dimension, you could, you know, five, six, seven, however many dimensions. And, and it really does start to become mind bending. And very difficult to, to display, but that's part of the challenge is trying to think how you can take this data structure and, and
4: render it in a way that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not even sure how I would go about trying to solve a, f- a five-dimensional maze. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I wrote a little program. Um, I called it Mazoo just because it had maze in it that I've since discovered that has, it's a popular phrase in sp- Spanish Twitter, apparently. But you do solve four-dimensional mazes, um, just you know, top-down, uh, looking at the maze from above, kind of move around, and that that's been a lot of fun. It's mizzou.jamesbuck.org is where it's hosted right now. But that was my my experiment to see what does it take to navigate and display a four-dimensional maze. That was that was my what-if game. A lot of, a lot of mazes is just playing, like uh, especially as I was working on this book that I wrote, I'd be researching some topic and I'd think. Well, that makes me wonder about this, which I don't necessarily want to put in the book, but I'm curious about. And so then I would spend a day tinkering and writing code and and come up with something that might be cool and might not be. But it was fun. And that that was huge for me.
4: Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying that programming can be fun?
2: (laughs) Programming can be so fun. I came to programming because it was fun. In uh, I guess I was, I don't know, I don't know how far back we want to go. But anyway, high school, I kind of, my mom got our first computer and I had vague memories of playing with basic back in elementary school computer classes. And I just started started playing. I just started experimenting and putting things together and making interactive fiction and, you know, go fish games and, and whatever. And I, I did it because, you know, to go back to Dungeons and Dragons, it made me feel like a wizard. Like I had this magic power and I could make the computer do stuff. It was awesome.
0: I think it's interesting that you bring that up because for me, you know, I kind of have the same feeling about programming, or at least I did when I started. And sometimes it's easy to forget that and think, oh, well, I have to build something that's useful or, you know, that fits the parameters that I'm getting from my client or my boss instead of realizing that, yeah, I can do something that's totally pointless that just stretches my brain in a way that I find enjoyable and that's all it has to be.
2: Totally. You know, I feel like corporate culture has a tendency to destroy the the sense of wonder that brought a lot of us to software development because of those deadlines and and we're we're constantly working towards some overarching purpose. But I mean there's been a lot of research done about the importance of play for children and 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 how that affects their development and I think we forget that play is also incredibly important as adults that it keeps us fresh and it keeps us creative and and lets us even in corporate culture like uh it helps us approach problem solving um in new ways it helps us think of of new ways to to accomplish the tasks that we've been asked to do and uh, if, if we aren't staying fresh, we we get stale. Well, we burn thing, out.
0: The other thing is, you gave a talk at Mountain West Ruby Conference on burnout, and mm-hmm. I think I think the two are related. I still haven't had a chance to watch the talk, but one of the things that I really enjoyed when I got started with programming was the discovery process, and I found that I'm finding that again when I play with things like Elixir or uh, iOS development with native script or Swift, and it it's really just, oh, I can make this happen on the phone. Like it doesn't have to be anything major. It's like I made this button show up and when I tap it it does something. And yeah, it's it's that sense of, oh wow. You know, there's there's this possibility. Oh, the world has opened up larger for me because of this. And, you know, hearkening back to the topic of burnout, it just I was so burned out for a while. And just finding something new to go and explore and play with. And, you know, could it be useful? Certainly. You know, could I build an app that people will want to use? Yes. But for me, it was more about the process of figuring out what the possibilities were in the world as opposed to, you know, doing the same thing that I've always done just to get the work done.
2: Absolutely. I think all of us either have gone through
0: burnout at some point or
2: will go through burnout at some point. It seems to be part of the natural cycle of Of many professions, but I think software developers are prone to it in a lot of ways. And play is such an important factor of coming out of that. Like you said, back in 2015, I was coming out of some burnout myself. And one of the things I did to work through that was I wrote a a short novella online, just quirky, playful, not serious, exploring maze, uh, not maze generation algorithms, but pathfinding algorithms, like finding ways through mazes. And it was it was a lot of fun, and it really got me thinking, you know, playing the what-if game and thinking about thinking about programming in ways that I hadn't in a long time. It was really valuable. So, Jameis, mazes have a
3: long history in human civilization going back at least 4,000 years. Do you think you are taking advantage of some of the meditative aspects of working with mazes through your technological work with mazes?
2: That's an interesting point. I mean, I, I don't like to solve mazes with pen and paper. Like, I don't have the patience for that. That's not the part I enjoy. And so, you know, the traditional use of a maze as a meditative tool is to follow the maze, either on paper, or to actually walk the maze, um, like in a garden or something. But for me, the fascination is more technical, I guess, like to to think of what makes this maze different than another maze or what are some of the characteristics of this particular maze, like how many corridors are horizontal versus uh, vertical and what's the ratio of, you know, perpendicular intersections. And like, I, I get into that kind of analysis, but in the same sense, it is a mindful tool, even approaching it that way, like the focus and the, the concentration I think there is something to that, and uh, not that I not that I would say I, I go to it for that purpose, but uh, I think I do get something out of it like that.
3: I think you did go to it for that purpose in 2015 when you burned out and decided to focus on mazes. I think, um, although historically, as you said, it's walking the maze, it's solving the maze, being the architect of a maze. I think can be that same meditative experience, and I, it seems like that's what got you through.
2: I could be. I won't won't argue it. It definitely wasn't a conscious decision. I tried a lot of things in 2015. My wife and I tried some uh, different business ideas. I tried some new hobbies. But it's interesting to me that I did keep coming back to mazes, which have been a fascination of mine for a long time.
0: I am kind of curious. How how did you wind up coming to mazes in the first place?
2: It was back in high school. my, My junior year, we had an Italian exchange student. His name was Stefano. And He was as into computer programming as I was. And we were in a small high school. There was no computer programming course. There was a computer science class, but it was, it was word processing and learning how to, how to use word perfect at the time. And so the teacher was pretty open minded and he saw that Stefano and, and I were really interested in programming aspect of it. And so he handed us a Turbo Pascal manual and said, go for it. And so he and I kind of made our own curricula. And one of those things was to try new things, experiment, and and show each other what we were doing. And I remember coming to school one day, sitting down in class, and Stefano said, Hey, come here. He uh, had me come over and look over his shoulder. And I watched as he uh, showed me this program that generated a maze. I didn't even know you could do that. And it totally fascinated me. And he showed me the code and how it worked. And in retrospect, I can look at it and say, Oh, it was a, a variation on the hunt and kill algorithm. And that was kind of my go-to algorithm for a long time, but that's kind of the beginning of it all that's where I first saw maze generated and really fell in love with it these maze generation
3: algorithms are they mainly coming from academia
2: many of them are i mean that's the thing mazes are very mathematical like graph theory and and everything it, like that is really what underpins all of all of mazes talking about graphs and connectedness and and trees and things like that. So um, there is a lot of research going back, you know, years and years on this. And so you've got algorithms like Aldous Broder and Wilson's algorithm, which come straight out of academia because they focus on what are called minimum spanning trees, which it's a special kind of... No, no, not minimum spanning trees. Sorry. Minimum Sorry. spanning trees are the... That's what a maze is. It's okay. it's a spanning tree in, in specifically. But... Uniform spanning tree. That's what I'm looking for. The idea being that if you have a grid, you can make a huge number of different possible mazes on it, just changing which which nodes in that grid are connected or not. Any of those is going to be a spanning tree because it spans the entire grid. A uniform spanning tree is going to be one that is selected uniformly from the pool of all possible spanning trees. And so as you can see, it gets very mathematical. There's been a lot of research under these uniform spanning trees and, and uh, Wilson and Aldous and Broder were three researchers and they came up with algorithms for generating these uniform spanning trees. So that's an example that comes straight from academia. Others, though, come from like game development. There's an algorithm called Ehlers, which was developed by a guy named Eller, And uh, he, uh, you know, he I'm sure he has an academic background, but his purpose was not researching these graphs and everything. It was it was just trying to find a, a way to generate a maze with certain properties. So there's some that are very academic, some that are more practical, but all of them have a very strong mathematical background and can be described mathematically, improved mathematically.
3: Do you find that helpful in translating it into code or
2: is that more of an impediment? It's kind of orthogonal to that. Like it it's interesting to me. I am not a mathematician but I do enjoy some of the theory behind mazes. For me, though, it's more about play, really. Like you, you tell me an algorithm and part of me is like, I wonder how that can be true. And I've I've gone and I've read like the paper that introduces Aldous Broder's algorithm, but it's, it's tough to read. It's not something I, I enjoy reading. I enjoy sitting down at the computer and thinking through an algorithm and, and trying to implement it. And the the proof really has no application at that point for me. And maybe it would for someone else. Maybe someone else would be able to optimize an algorithm because they knew how it worked mathematically. But no, that's not me.
3: I once found an amazing book. It seemed amazing. It was um, a book of algorithms inspired by nature. And um, best of all, all of the code examples were in Ruby. Nice. (laughs) So I was super excited about this book. And then I made the mistake of reading it. (laughs) Um, the ruby code was the worst that i've ever 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 seen it was not object oriented it was procedural it had single character variable names it used the wrong kind of loops it was just like the least standard ruby that i'd ever seen and it it made me so sad (laughs) so that kind of turned me off to a lot of the academic approaches to algorithms because um like either they're unapproachable or the code is so bad that I, I just don't feel right using it.
2: That's actually a big reason why I did my book in Ruby, because that's the language that I use most comfortably. I am familiar with the idioms. I'm familiar with best practices, So I, I hate that phrase. I felt a lot of pressure to do it in another language like C sharp or something where or C where, you know, more of the gaming community developer community is going to be using that but i i felt i would i would slaughter it like like you're describing happened with ruby because oh, um, you
1: wanted it to be fun
2: exactly and and ruby is fun it's totally fun but i have gotten some pushback from other people who you know saw the book and they're like what the heck ruby why ruby and they walk away from it which makes me sad but really i don't know i, I don't know what uh, the developer might have done and in, in the case of the book you're you mentioned, Corlin, but I think just the, having a reviewer <laughs> helps a lot. The I think the opinion. problem was that the
3: person who wrote it was not a developer.
2: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Academia, maybe? Yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah.
1: There's a problem with the sciences. The scientists, the grad students, and the researchers, they really need programming, but that's not part of their curriculum, and so they just have to scrape up the knowledge on their own. And it's really tough to get those, like, industry-wide practices and idioms until you, like, really dedicate yourself to programming. But when programming isn't your job, it's just a really efficient way to get your job done, that's harder.
3: Yeah. A for collaboration.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, a reviewer who was a developer could have made all the difference for that book.
2: Yep. I mean, even me, like where I've been coding in Ruby for 15 years, my reviewers were still invaluable to me to suggest better ways to do this, or, you know, maybe find a clearer way to do that. And in the end, I think it came out really well, probably in a large part because, I mean, I say at the front of my book that I'm not a mathematician, and I'm going to avoid math speak and proofs. And it really I wanted to focus on the fun and how mazes can be fun. And I think that influenced a lot of how the code came together and built on itself because, you know, mazes are fun. That's what it comes down to.
0: So let's say (laughs) somebody does pick an area that they want to go play in like this. How did you go about discovering what some of these algorithms were? Uh, Did you just kind of try and make some up on your own or was it all, Oh, I, I hear about this one and here's how it works and I'll go build it. Well, for a long time, I only knew
2: this hunt and kill algorithm, which the idea is you you have a grid and you you start somewhere. You, you just pick a starting point randomly and then you do a random walk, which means you just choose north and you go north and then west and, and then north and then east and east and south. You just pick a random path mm-hmm. through it until you dead end, until you can't go any other way. At that point, you switch to hunt mode and you go to the top and you hunt for a location, a cell that is adjacent to, that that is not visited, but which is adjacent to a cell that is visited. And then you pick it up from there and you just do that over and over until the whole thing is filled. So that's hunt and kill for a long time. That's the only one I knew. And so I wanted to do an article about it back in 2010 on my blog. And so I wrote a, a post about hunt and kill and as as I was doing that, I did some research and I came across a site called Think Labyrinth. It's a site by Walter Polin. And he has, he's, he's written some software called Daedalus, which is only Windows only. So I've never actually used it, but it's pretty amazing from the description. It does everything maze wise. He's also got a site, a few pages on there that describe maze algorithms. And he doesn't describe the implementation of them, just how they work. And so that was a good jumping off point for me. To say, oh, okay, let's let's jump into this. Let's see if I can figure out this algorithm. Binary tree or sidewinder or uh, Eller's algorithm or, or any of those. And that series of blog posts that I wrote in 2010, 2011, really were the core of me discovering all these other algorithms and playing what if, like looking at it and going, okay, how, how does this one work? How do I implement that? What if I do it this way? What if I do it that way? And it was a lot of fun.
4: Well, I found it interesting uh, looking through the uh, framework that you came up with for the book of, you know, a grid that contains cells and wires those cells together because, I don't know, uh, probably about 10 years ago, I was working on a project in college and uh, I wound up with more or less the same structure that you had, but I had come at it with a with a different goal, which was to explore the concept of modeling diffusion. And it was it was just kind of funny how we uh, to notice how our our brains sort of gravitated to that same sort of shape because that's kind of what you get when you think about these things.
2: Yeah, great minds think alike, or great grids look alike, or something.
4: Um, <laughs> it was interesting uh, just to see the fundamental shapes sort of like poking through.
2: Well, it's interesting because when I was writing the posts, the blog posts back in 2010 and 11, like I was focused on accomplishing it a different way. Like If you read those articles, I do a lot of bit manipulation. Each cell is an integer and the connections are the bits between them. And so it was oh, pretty low level, which lets you do it pretty efficiently in a lot of ways. But I've really found that if you model the actual cells and the connections between them, the algorithms... Shine through really, really well, and uh, that made the book a lot easy. Like it made the code a lot easier to explain in the book, and uh, it's a lot more flexible in a lot of ways. I can
3: see a lot of implications for using a graph database for storing the information about the um, about the cells and their connections to each other. Have you experimented with something like Neo4j for that?
2: Not for that. That's interesting. I, I've played with Neo4j a couple of times on on other things. But yeah, that you, you've got me wondering now because I mean, all, all a maze is it's like, like we said, it's a, it's a spanning tree. And so it's just connections between cells and, uh, you get a different maze depending on, on how you, you build or remove those connections. Yeah.
3: I built a rudimentary, I don't know if it qualifies as a maze. Um, I have this IRC bot that I was trying out. It was like my playground for a long time. Her name is Alice. And, um, one of the things built into Alice was a sort of copy of the, the Hunt the Grew game from the old days. So there was a series of rooms and every room had a series of exits and so rooms were connected to one another and there was stuff in each of the rooms. Some of it was like for interacting with like, um, non-player characters that you could talk to. Some of it was items that you could just collect for the fun of it and some of them were weapons. And some rooms were dark, and if a room was dark, there would be a chance that a Gru would be in the room. And if you didn't have a weapon, then the Gru would eat you, and the maze would reset, and you'd be assigned the cursed fruitcake. <laughs> and um, I found that just keeping track, it was generated on the fly. So as you moved east, I would create a new room to the east and decide what its exits would be. And it was really, really complicated keeping track of, like, the neighbors of a given room had it had they been seen before? Like what the connecting exits would have to be? That was non-trivial. I was really surprised.
2: Yeah, I'd be I'd be curious to to hear more about how you went about that because like, like I, I describe twelve algorithms in my book, but I think everyone can come at it a different way and come up with with new ways of thinking about how these are built and generated. And every single one of them has different strengths and different challenges. And uh, I love hearing about how people come up with ways to generate mazes because it's it is fascinating to see how their thought process arrived at it. I'm sure I did it in the most primitive, most naive,
3: most expensive way possible. (laughs) I was really proud of the fact, though, that Alice would generate an SVG of the map as it was explored. So from IRC, you get into a map command and Alice would give you the URL and you go to the map. And um, you'd see it laid out graphically, and um, you could mouse over to the rooms and get like description of its contents and everything like that. So you could kind of retrace your steps.
2: So it was a fun exercise. Cool. That uh, fun is the key word for that. Like I, I hear that, and I'm like, that would be fun. And for me, the fun would be in the developing of it more than the actual playing of it. I think. Yeah. But, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's, awesome.
3: that's the case. I think that's definitely the case. It was a novelty for the first couple of weeks that she had that feature. And in the past mm-hmm. year, probably no one's used the maze functionality except me. But
0: <laughs> I wonder a little bit, Jameis, if you worry that because I've seen people that get into some problem space like this and then they realize that somebody else has already been there and done it. Do you worry that some people are going to get into this and then go, oh, but Jameis has already done mazes, so I'm going to do something else? I don't because it's like saying,
2: "Well, Chuck's already done programming, so I'm gonna go." You know, like there's no point.
4: Everybody because, else is breathing oxygen, so I'm <laughs> right. <playing. laughs>
2: because there's so like in in the as I was working on this book, it it struck me that there are an infinite different an infinite number of ways to vary these algorithms. You can play with each one of them for days and days and days. And yeah, someone else might have played with it in similar ways, but you're going to come at it from a different perspective than someone else would. And you might think of a, a novel way to, to display the maze or a novel way to, to to generate it with some new feature or attribute by, ver- by uh, varying the, the algorithm in some way. And it's a playground. It really is. It's like if someone's already on the monkey bars, well, go play on the swings, you know, go run around in the... And the bark chips for a while and, and uh, just find, a, find an area that interests you and it doesn't matter if there's other people playing there or not
4: I almost feel like the premise of that attitude too is the idea that it's not worth doing if you're not going to be the first and you can't like tack your name on it, whereas I feel like the point of playing with this kind of thing or whatever, whatever catches your fancy is not so much what you bring to the field, but what the field does to your brain and what thinking about this stuff gets you
2: Absolutely. I think that's an awesome way to put it because it is play. It's just play. And if you're doing it for recognition, it's rapidly going to stop being fun. And, uh, there's room for that. Like if you want to come up with some new maze algorithm and get it published in a journal somewhere, then go for it. But there's so much room for just playing in these for the fun of it.
4: I think we've just captured extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation.
0: (laughs) I have to, I, I'm also wondering, you mentioned that there are infinite uh, ways to vary these algorithms. So do you get to the point where you're like, yeah, I'm not enjoying mazes as much as I did because I've been doing it for a while or because I don't feel like there's enough new that I have, haven't have explored yet. And then do you move on to something else?
2: Yeah. I mean, honestly, after I finished my book, I kind of put mazes aside for a little while because I had been so immersed in it for like eight months. That I, I needed a break and that's normal, right? You're uh, maybe, maybe it's not normal for other people, but it's normal for me. I, I dive really deep into something for a brief period of time and then I come out and I want to do something else. For instance, uh, there was a time where I was fascinated by Celtic knots and I was reading about different algorithms for for producing Celtic knots, and I, I wrote a prototype of a program that would generate and render Celtic knots and got it kind of working and then moved on to something else. And, you know, I've played with chain mail, and I've played with, you know, I've done knitting, and I've I've done wood carving, and it all kind of comes and goes for me, but it, it all kind of adds to who I am. And mazes are are part of that, too. Like, I keep coming back to mazes, and then I keep going away from them, but they're there now. They're part of my toolbox, part of my, my playground.
3: I'm curious if um, you've limited yourself to implementing known algorithms or if you've ever said, I'm going to ignore the the math on this, I'm going to ignore the algorithms on this, and I'm just going to try something and see where it leads me.
2: I have. I have. I've done kind of a hybrid, too. There have been a couple of algorithms that I've done where I've taken an existing algorithm and said, what if we did it a little differently? And I've come up with um some novel novel ways of approaching maze generation. Um there's other times where, and I'm less successful at this, where I'll say, This is the kind of maze I want to end up with. How would I generate that? And uh, like I said, I haven't been very successful at that. I, I guess maybe I'm not that kind of a programmer as much as expertly uh what's the word. to to take something that already exists and and change it into something else. But uh, both ways are fun. And I've had conversations with people.
1: You mentioned two different ways of exploring there. One was start with something and find out what happens if you do it. And the other was start with a goal and try to get there. And I think it's kind of inherent in play to start from what happens if I do this, as opposed to, I want to get there. Where at work, you typically have a goal that you need to try to get to, and that's not nearly as much fun, and it's also not as easy, and you don't get as many cool surprises.
2: You're right. I, I, I think both of them have benefits, and it depends on your personality. You know which one you're going to gravitate to. Some people are the inventors, and some people are the tinkerers. And I think I'm a tinkerer, and I, I find a lot of a lot of joy in digging deep into the internals of something and seeing how it works. And then, and then saying, what if I love playing what if like just in Ruby recently? I've been digging into the syntax and and looking at something and saying, Oh, okay. Well, what if we do it this way? Like I wrote a a post recently. It says, well, if statements in Ruby are actually expressions and the condition for an if statement is an expression. So what if you put an if statement in the condition of an if statement? What, is that, what happens? What does that mean? And, and I kind of followed that rabbit hole. I, I, that's Don't crash the, the of, streams. Yeah, that's kind <laughs> of what it did in my head. But it's, that's the kind of exploration I, I really enjoy right now. For some reason, I just
3: got the idea of generating a maze based on the AST of a program. Yeah.
0: <laughs> idea. You, you should generate You're the right maze based on us. the AST of your maze program. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that, very meta. That would be awesome. <laughs> that, would, that would actually be a really cool way to uh, to think about a computer program. Yeah, you so can actually encode the entire thing as a maze. As a maze. Yeah. See, now I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight because I'm going to be trying to think about how you would do that.
3: <laughs> and for our listeners who don't know, AST is an abstract syntax tree. It is a tree-based view of the logic of your program. It's an intermediate step between um, the interpreted language and compiling it down into... Um, machine something the machine will understand.
4: Yeah, and it's a it's a data structure that you can use either to generate a compiled representation of your program, or to interpret it on the fly.
2: You know, and it's interesting to think about a, uh, a an abstract syntax tree and how you you execute an uh, an AST like interpret it by following the nodes down. It's got a lot of similarities to you know navigating a maze because a maze is a tree and Anyway, got me thinking.
4: Okay, Take that code or you'll make your computer crash.
2: (laughs) (laughs) For this code review.
3: I'm going to see a maze with a race condition. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Well, if you end up doing that, tweet at me because I would love to see that.
2: Yeah, well, likewise. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm puzzling through like what that would what that would mean. I've given you food for thought, and probably you have interview. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing with mazes, though, is that because trees are such a ubiquitous data structure in computer programming, like we use them everywhere, whether we think about it or not. Mazes can turn up in surprising places. Fractals, you know, like Mm -hmm. tree-based fractals, and you know, you can you can wind up with mazes that get uh, progressively finer and finer resolution. You open a, a door and go into a room, and boom, there's another maze. And you have to traverse that, and boom, you find another room with another maze in it, and it just keeps going down and down. It, it, there's so many different ways to think about these.
0: So, you, uh, you should have written your book as a choose-your-own-adventure. <laughs> 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 Dang
2: it, you're right.
4: Does have cycles, Chuck. Volume 2. <laughs> <laughs> But hey, speaking of books, I was curious, and I'm always curious when I talk to somebody who's written a book, um, everything that I've ever heard suggests that writing a book is this grueling thing. Um, I've noticed, for example, that everybody who is married and writes a book makes sure to call out how uh, loving and supportive their spouse was. And so I'm wondering, like, what to you was so important about this that you were that you wanted to go through that? Or did you just uh, did you not realize the implications before you started? (laughs) Well, it's like for you.
2: It's like having children, right? Going into it, you hear it's going to be hard and you hear it's a lot of work and you hear it's it's great too, and so you kind of go in thinking you're you're prepared and you're ready, and you're just <laughs> never ready for the reality uh, going into it. Like I said, I I tried a lot of things that summer. You know, I wrote the, the Basil and Fabian novella about pathfinding algorithms, and and uh, really found I enjoyed that process, and kind of remembered the the maze posts that I'd written and and some encouragement I'd had to turn them into a book. And I, I wasn't employed at the time, so um, I was taken a year off. And so I thought, uh, uh-huh. yeah, I should have some time to write a book. And so I did. And it was a lot of work. And I'm glad I didn't have a job. I, I My head is off to anyone who writes a book while working and raising a family because it was hard enough just raising a family and writing a book. But it was what I needed therapeutically at that point to to rediscover what I loved about programming.
3: Please tell me you were inspired in part by Gödel Schoenbach by Douglas Hofstadter <laughs> and how he fictionalized math and science.
2: You know, I wish I could say that. I That is on my bucket list to read, and I haven't read it yet.
3: I read it, like, every 10 years, and I always get something new from that book. And it was really inspirational to me to get started in this field. Did it take so.
1: 10 years to read it?
3: <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, you probably could if you wanted
2: to, but... I need to read that book. its I, I think this is the motivation I need to actually uh, purchase it and read it. And I'm going to come back around to go to
3: Leishunbach in my picks today, so I planted the seed. <laughs> okay. The four, this is um, Chekhov's gun, I guess.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of picks, should we go ahead and go to picks?
3: Was there anything else you wanted us to cover before we go to picks, Jameis? I think we've we've covered it all pretty well. I don't think there's anything specific. Oh, I did have one other question. What is your tech stack for generating mazes? Are you generating them graphically? And if so, what tool are you using?
2: Oh, in in the book? Yeah. Um, well, we start by generating them in just ASCII, which works well for the rectangular grids well enough. Um, but then I use Chunky Ping, the, the library for, to generate ping images. Cool. Which is pretty fantastic it doesn't do arcs which i missed when i did the circle mazes but uh for everything else it's fantastic
3: awesome i'll check that out i've only used gosu so
2: yeah chunky ping is i, I can't recommend it enough cool
0: all right well let's do some picks sam what are your picks
4: I think just one today. Uh, I've been, for the past couple of months, I've been on a bit of a zombie TV show and movie kick. Uh, So I've watched The Walking Dead and Z Nation, which for a sci-fi show is surprisingly good. That'd be the sci-fi channel, I mean. Uh, And recently watched Zombieland as well. And uh, so they're all a lot of fun. But I think uh, of them all, I I have to uh, give the nod to The Walking Dead. It's just this wonderful story. It is as bleak as can be, it is about the end of civilization and uh, it's really depressing and people do horrible things in it. But for all of that, there were really interesting characters and um, I actually somehow really enjoy it. So that's my pick for today.
0: Awesome. Coraline, what are your picks?
4: I
3: also just have one pick today and it's something that I stumbled across years ago and just like rediscovered and um, I'm absolutely in love with it. It is a website called The Codeless Code. It is an illustrated collection of fables concerning the art and philosophy of software development. The fables are a nod to Zen Cohen's, but not nearly as inscrutable as true Zen Cohen's. The site was started in 2010 by a developer who goes by Key, Qi, QI, and um actually he was inspired by the Coens and Gerla Schoenbach. Um on average he produces one new fable per week, and they're there is beautifully done and beautifully beautifully written and presented. Um, I wanted to share one of my favorite ones, the three most terrifying words. And I'm not going to read it. I'll give you a synopsis. Um, a developer at a monastery, everything takes place in a monastery. Um, a developer is working on a production issue. And a senior monk approaches and looks over his shoulder and says, ah, the three most terrifying words. And a novice later that night asks what those words are and is told possible race condition. Um, that night, the novice has terrible nightmares, and she awakens in a featureless desert. And nearby, there's a map of the world, including its deserts. Inside one desert was a red dot pointed to by a tiny red arrow, next to which was a tiny red writing, which read, possibly
0: your location. All right, Jessica, what are your picks?
1: I have two picks today. One is a book that I'm currently reading. It's, it's a classic. It's called *Jurgen: the Comedy of Justice by James Branch Cabell and it was written like in like 1919 and it was like the source of some big scandal cuz it was it it like talked about sex a bit and then the like the edition that i was looking at was published in the 60s and it's classified as adult fantasy which it's totally not what we would call adult fantasy now but apparently you know it's like set in a fantasy world with like its own pantheon but it's not for kids and that was apparently enough to classify it as adult fantasy Back in the day. Uh, but it's, it's just really fascinating and it's written a long time ago, but it's super interesting in its allegories and uh, psychological insights. So Jurgen, that's my first pick. My other pick is a video on YouTube by Vihart about the two recent tragedies in Orlando and aspects of our culture that contribute to that and make it even sadder. So that's a 13-minute video that takes me hours to like process, but it's very meaningful. The end.
0: All right. We've got a couple of picks that I'm going to put out there. Uh, The first one, so last week I was in Oklahoma for a family reunion, and we were on a property that actually had minimal cell service, meaning that I occasionally could get a text message through. (laughs) Uh, If you tried to call me, it would just tell you no. Um, and if I tried to call out, it would tell me that I didn't have a connection that would work, and there was no internet and so you know for three or four days, I was just out there with with no connection whatsoever and I have to say that it was it was very very nice and so if you're looking for an opportunity to break up some of this um burnout, having a complete change of pace to the point where you can't even you can't even do the things that you would do to you know, that even resemble what you normally do for work or whatever. Uh, It was really nice. And I, you know, I got to spend a lot of time with my family and things like that. And so, you know, I'm definitely just picking that where you completely disconnect. A few other things we did out there that were just fun is we went out on jet skis and we actually, uh, there was a small lake there, private lake. And so we just were out on the jet ski, put the kids on tubes and dragged them around the lake and that was a lot of fun, and so just, just being outdoors is another pick. And then, lastly, we went out, we shot shotguns and rifles. And my son, you know, shot his BB gun. and Anyway, it was just a ton of fun just getting out there and, you know, just shooting rifles So uh, and shotguns. So I'm going to pick that as well. Jameis, what are your picks? All right, so I've got a couple of picks. One, it's the Productive
2: app for iOS, and it has changed my life. I have to say I've been using it for probably nine months now and it is exactly the way that I need to think about scheduling my day calendars and planners have never done anything for me trying to schedule when something's going to happen every day is like torture. I, I hate doing that, but productive just lets me say these are the things I need to accomplish today or each day. And it, it specifically, it's about things you're going to do every day. It's about building habits. And some of the habits I put in there, I have done every day without, without breaking the chain for like seven, seven, eight months. It's been really amazing. The other pick, it's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, how to waste time. Um, Kerbal Space Program is my crack. I seriously cannot stop playing this game, but it's such a great example of play as. A way to learn as a conduit for learning and discovery. It's uh, it's an amazing an amazing program that that lets you build your rockets and understand the science behind them, and plot trajectories and, and everything. It's pretty incredible.
0: That sounds fun. All right, Jameis, If people want to see what you're up to these days, what what do they do?
2: Um, I got a blog at uh, weblog.jameisbuck.org, and I've also been writing Medium lately, and I'm on Twitter as Jameis. So yeah. Come talk to me.
0: All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap the show up. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. It's been fun. All right. We'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the Rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.